0: Happy Reformation Sunday to all of you. Turn to somebody next to you and say Happy Reformation Sunday. (laughs) Tell it to somebody else. Happy Reformation Sunday. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, and the world has never been the same since. In all different times and histories, it's important to renew our faith even though God's love for us is steadfast, it is the renewal of the church and for us to be reminded of the covenant promises of God and how we tend to stray and that God tends to bring us back and that the cornerstone of all renewal is the renewal of God's Word. For, you see, it wasn't really the most important thing that Luther did when he nailed those complaints to the door of the church. You have all kinds of complaints in church, and you've never started a Reformation. <laughs> and the other more important thing that Luther did, but not the most important thing, was when he was standing on trial, and he was saying that I cannot and I will not recant. That was important, but it wasn't the most important thing he did. So after he was ostracized, after Luther had to flee for his life, Luther had to go to this place in exile. This is the Wartburg Castle in Germany. He was protected there because he was in a disguise. He was one of the most famous figures in that part of the world. He grew a beard. He was wearing a soldier's outfit. He was also the kind of person who was incredibly ill at this point. And inside that castle, he was in a room in isolation. And in this room, and this is the room where it took place, Luther, in that exile, channeled his passion for God's word, and he translated the Greek New Testament into German to be able to give the word back to the people. Did you know 500 years ago of last month was the time that Luther published that Greek New Testament to be able to give God's word back to his people and that you and I would not be here today in church with our quest journey were it not for the faithfulness of him who was willing to make sure that the the word of god could be accessible and in our own language. So let me have you do it again. Turn to somebody next to you and say happy reformation Sunday. Happy reformation. If you will turn with me in your bibles to Acts chapter 27 and let me remind you of this quest journey that we're on where we're exploring the whole story of god together and we follow in Luther's footsteps when we say that we want to put a bible in every hand and god's story in to every heart. And we're looking in the New Testament and we're drawing towards the conclusion of the book of Acts. And so while you're turning there, let me tell you an introductory story about this man that I want to put up on the screen right now. His name is Sir Oscar Wilde, the famous Irish playwright and writer. And this next picture is a picture of him when he entered Oxford for the first time. What a great hat, by the way. When he was taking his exams, what they did in Oxford at the time is you had all kinds of different exams, but in particular you had your oral exams, and he was getting one of his exams in Classics. And because of the Socratic tradition in which Oxford really prized itself in, they would have you come and they would have you stand and you would have an oral exam. And in Classics, they handed him a copy of the Greek New Testament, so, in other words, all he had was the Greek language in front of them, and he had to stand there. And they told him where to turn, and then he was to start reading and to translating on the spot. And so he turned to—they had him turn towards the end of the Book of Acts, the chapter that you're about to share with me right now. And they had him start to read it aloud in Greek and to translate it on the spot. And then they got to a point where he was doing quite well with that, and they said, "It's okay." you can stop. And he said, no, I want to keep going. I want to find out what happens to this poor chap. <laughs> Today, we are about to find out what happens to this poor bloke that is Paul. How does his story end? Because you see, his story doesn't end in the way that we think it does. The book of Acts builds with a tension and a crescendo of Paul coming back to Jerusalem. And like the one that he follows Jesus, he is imprisoned. And you think that Paul is going to find that he's going to die in Jerusalem just like his Lord and his Savior did, but that's not going to be Paul's ending. For you see, Paul is put on a ship and he is headed to Rome in order to confront the most powerful figure in the world with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is going to do over this whole chapter is he is going to find himself into this type of setting. And from a scriptural story standpoint, hopefully as you've been walking through the story of God together, you realize how significant a moment at sea would be for someone like Paul. That this is, in many regards, an act of salvation like it was for the Israelites as they made their way through the Red Sea. That this is a moment like the prophet Jonah when he is going to find himself in the midst of a storm. But the difference between Jonah and Paul Is that Jonah was reluctantly driven towards sharing God's good news with other people. And yet, Paul will do anything, even with his own life, to do it. It's the reversal of the Jonah story. But most importantly of all, both Luke and Acts, who were written by the same author, the physician Luke, have a kind of a a concluding pinnacle chapter. In the book of Luke, that concluding chapter, in terms of the pinnacle of it, is what happens in the cross where Luke tells us, this is what evil is at its worst, and yet Jesus has conquered it. And then in the book of Acts, which is Luke, volume 2, it is going to be, this is evil at its worst, and it's going to be the threaten of chaos overtaking the world. Again, Luke drawing on the tradition of taking us all the way back to the watery chaos of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to remind us that this whole thing is about the renewal of all creation and not even the beasts of the sea and the chaos of the storm will be able to overtake or to stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today I want to do something a little different in the sense of we're not going to put the words on the screen, I hope you will follow along in your own Bibles. I'm going to take my time, and we're going to read the entire chapter of Acts 27. It's one long story. So settle in, buckle up, and let's listen to God's holy world. When it was decided that we would set sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium and about to set sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. And from there, we put out to sea again and passed the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea, off to the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed in Myra of Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us aboard. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off of Senatus, And when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite of Salmone. And we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Everybody got all the geography this far? (laughs) Much of the time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous. And bring a great loss of ship and cargo to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot, of the owner of the ship. And, And since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This is not Phoenix, Arizona, my friends. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. And before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a nor'easter swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. And so we gave way to it and were driven along. And as we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard and then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid that they would run aground of the sandbars of Syrtis. And they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice to not sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. Paul is the ultimate I told you so guy. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land, they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. And then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And so the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and gone without food. You haven't eaten anything, and now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. And then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. And when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. And then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf and the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land and then the rest were to get there on the planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way... Everyone reached land safely. This is a story that is broken into three acts. And it tells you, what do you do when the winds are against you? What do you do when you're in the midst of the storm? And what do you do when you need to find land? First, let's talk about what do you do when the winds are against you? Because I'm sure that there are moments in your life where you will feel that resistance, that everything is harder and you feel that you're being slowed down or that there's some sort of countervailing force that is just against you and that your life is a struggle. Notice some of the language that's excerpted from what we just read. Because the winds were against us, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we moved along the coast with difficulty. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous. I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and to cargo and to our own lives also. Have you ever felt metaphorically that that was going on for your own life, that it describes your own story. You see, part of the reason that we don't quite understand, even if we have sailing experience, how difficult this would have been, is that when we think of a sail ship, what, what, what is the shape of the sail that you tend to think of? What do you think of? You think of a triangle, right? Well, these, these were Roman sailing ships. They didn't use triangles. They used squares. Triangles enable you to tack against the wind. You don't have that luxury with a square sail. And so it was a lot harder to sail against the wind in that kind of a vessel. You might question the wisdom of why they would have even been sailing at this time of year. Well, there would have been a great amount of profit to bring grain from that part of the world over into Italy at that moment in time. And so you maybe even noticed in the story there was a point at which they threw the grain overboard. That was when you knew that that all hope seemed to be lost. I want to show you our best estimate of a GPS coordinates of Paul's trip from Acts chapter 27. Have you ever felt like your life looked like this kind of journey? Do you see in that strange town Sinaitis up there and how it takes a a drastic turn southward? You need to know that this is not the normal path that you would do to head over to Italy you would normally keep going straight. There was no reason for them to go down to Crete other than the fact that the winds blew them that way. And then once they got off the coast of Crete, they found their way over to Malta. But it was a lot of back and forth and back and forth. And so here's what I want you to notice. When the winds are against you, stay true to the mission. But be flexible to change your course. There's a true story of a woman by the name of Kelly, who is not my wife. And this woman, Kelly, was on a run. She was training for a marathon. And when she was on this afternoon long run, at one particular moment, she needed to stop to use the facilities. And so she went into a park restroom. And this is the GPS of what happened when she got into that bathroom and the surrounding area. The reason that these are the GPS coordinates from her phone is because once she got into that bathroom, there was an assailant waiting there to attack her. For over 30 minutes, she fought off her assailant, moving back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, eventually to the point where the police came and he could be arrested. Later, she put this on a T-shirt to give inspiration for others, that she was willing to take course and stay true to the mission of her own safety and security. I need to give you a little family-friendly warning. If you Google this story, not today is not the end of that phrase that she uses. I'm glad that at least a few of you understand what that meant. <laughs> the rest of you know what I mean, but it's, uh, you're just afraid to chuckle about it in church. The gospel gives us unique resources when the wind is against us. It gives us a tenacity and an ability to stand firm where we need to stand firm and to be flexible where we need to be Flexible. And so there's what you do when the winds are against you. Then there's what you do when you're in the midst of the storm. You know those moments where it's not just resistance, but those moments where you find yourself in the midst of the chaos of your life being turned upside down. And I love how Renee Schlepfer talks about it in three different questions He says, when you're in the midst of the storm, there's three questions you need to ask yourself. The first question is, what can I do? What can I do? Notice what it says in the text here about what they could do. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. So even though they were not in control of the storm, they were able to put the ropes underneath the ship in order to be able to hold it together. They could at least do that. And then the second question that they they could ask is, what can I do without? In other words, there's what you can do, and then there's also those moments where you need to maybe let something go. Notice in the story what we experience here in this point, that they began to throw the cargo overboard. The first question is, you need to ask, what can I do in this moment? The second question is, is there something that I can let go of when I'm in the midst of the storm? Storm moments are a great moment where you realize that you might be hanging on to something that you can let go of. And then the third question in the midst of this is, where can I put my hope? Where can I put my hope? Notice this in the text that In chapter 27, verse 20, that they said, When neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days and nights, the storm continued raging, and we finally gave up all what? Hope. Luke says we gave up all hope. They all gave up hope. And it was Paul who brought them back with a vision, a promise. That the hope was maybe not in the form that they expected. But it was in the form of the assurance of God's promise to them. And so there are those moments where the wind is against you. There are those moments when you are in the midst of the storm. Where you need to ask yourself, what can I do? What can I do without? Where can I put my hope? And then there's this third dimension of Acts chapter 27 that is when you need to find land. What are those moments where you need to be saved? You see, you may have not noticed it, but in the original language, and we translate it in different ways, there is the word for salvation that appears seven times in Acts chapter 27. In other words, this is a rescue operation, just like it was for Jonah, but it's not a rescue operation that is a rescue kind of in the way that we tend to think. Like we tend to think of a rescue operation would be that the heavens open, Jesus walks out, and he rescues them. This is going to be a rescue, but it is not going to be a rescue without a crash landing. When we look not only at the book of scripture, we can see this, we can also see it in the book of nature. I wanna show you a magnificent bird. This is the albatross. The albatross has the widest wingspan of any bird in all of nature. It has a wingspan of 12 feet. The albatross will spend upwards of 18 months at sea without ever going to land. It'll be on the water, it will fly, it will soar, it will eat the fish. And so the albatross only comes to land in order to be able to to bring the next generation to life. And so you can imagine, if you don't spend a lot of time on land, that even though you're a magnificent bird with the greatest of wingspan, that maybe, maybe your landing gear isn't so great when it comes to land. And so I want to show you what it's like for an albatross to have to practice landing. This is from New Zealand. (laughs) I mean, you can have fun all afternoon just Googling albatross videos of crash landings. But can you relate to that bird? I know I can. There are some times in your life where your greatest hope, your greatest salvation is is just that you you need to find some land anywhere by any means. And that part of what the gospel uniquely equips us to do is to say even in the crashes of life, God is with us. And so to end this message today, I just want to give you a moment to reflect for your own journey right now with these three different segments of a magnificent chapter of what happened to this poor guy. Are you in a moment right now where the winds are against you? Where you're facing incredible resistance? Are you in a moment right now when you're in the midst of the storm where your life seems to be turned upside down? Are you in a desperate moment where you need salvation and you need to find land? And depending on where you are in this journey, in this chapter, there's five questions that kind of come out of that. If it's just winds, how can I keep going, God? If you're in the storm, what can I do? If you're in the storm, what can I do without? If you're in the storm... Where can I put my hope that is secure? And maybe if you're so desperate that you need to be rescued. Maybe you need to ask the question, how can I stop? Even if it's a crash landing. I just want to leave this up here for a few moments. Ask you to do your own little self-reflection and audit. And when you look at these five questions, is there an action item for you that the Holy Spirit is urging you to move on? Too often, as a preacher, I let you off the hook where I try to inspire you and challenge you, but you don't walk out of here with a clear action step. And I believe by God's grace, with these five questions, I imagine that the Spirit is moving and tugging and pulling you in a variety of ways that says, I need to do something. And if that is true, will you write it down on your phone, jot it on a piece of paper? But don't ignore this moment. because we don't just want to find out what happened to Paul, we want to find out what happens to you. And how the gospel uniquely resources you for being able to resist. How the gospel uniquely resources you to have power to do what you didn't think you could do. How the gospel uniquely resources you to let go of things that you need to let go of. How the gospel uniquely equips you To have a hope that's unlike any other and how the gospel is even with you when you need to crash land. Will you do something today in response to this chapter? And so let us pray. Father, we thank you that 500 years ago you were inspiring someone to go deep into your word and to hand your word back to us as your people. Thank you that we have a written record of what happened to this great guy named Paul. Not because we're just so fascinated with him, but because we know that his life is a reflection of your good news. May we follow in his footsteps to reverse the curse of Jonah, how we don't want your good news to go out into the world. And like Paul, we want to make sure that we take your good news to the ends of the earth. Thank you, God, that your gospel is still alive and active in and through your word and that it still uniquely equips us even today when the winds are against us and when we're in the storm and even in those moments of crash landing. And so help us to be true to the mission but be flexible to change course. Help us to tie down in moments of desperation and help us to throw things off the decks of our ship that we need to let go of. And help us to cling to your promises that gives us hope and freedom and power, knowing that you are with us and that chaos and that the sea will not win in the end. And so we thank you, God, for this chapter and for your glory that is revealed through a gospel that can never be thwarted or stopped. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.